there's a great deal of interest in the body of Christ when it comes to finding God's will. As a matter of fact, if you go to a Christian bookstore, you can find a variety of books that give you different ways, uh, means, uh, processes for discovering God's will for your life. And of course, we are interested in knowing God's will for our life. But you need to understand there are two aspects to God's will for your life. First of all, there is the seeking of God's will. And most of the books in the Christian bookstore are about seeking God's will. But there's another very important part to God's will for your life. And that is surrender to God's will for your life. Not just seeking, but when God shows you, surrender to what He shows you. Now in our text this morning, we're going to talk about the will of God. But we're not going to talk so much about seeking the will of God because Paul, who we're following in his journey already knew the will of God clearly. What we're going to focus on is Paul's surrender to what God had revealed to him about his will. So keeping that in mind, look with me in Acts chapter 21. We are working our way through the book of Acts, and we've made it to chapter 21. Verse 1 is where we will begin reading. Acts 21, verse 1. The title of my sermon this morning is, Let the will of the Lord be done. Let the will of the Lord be done. Look there with me. Acts 21, verse 1. I'd like to ask you this morning if you are physically able to please stand with me in honor of the reading of God's Word. Uh, Here at our church, uh, Longview Point, we believe the Bible. We believe the Bible is the Word of God, truth with no mixture of error. It is the foundation for our lives, what we believe, and how we practice our faith. I'm grateful today for the Word of God. And in Acts chapter 21... Verse 1, it says, when we, now remember, Luke is writing this book we call Acts, and Luke was on this missionary journey with Paul, one of his companions. He says, when we had parted from them and set sail, we came by a straight course to Kos, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patera. And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we had come inside of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre. For there the ship was to unload its cargo. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. When our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey. And they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said, Farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship, and they returned home. When we had Finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemy, and we uh, greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, this is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What are you doing weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem 
for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. The seeking was over. Now it was time for surrender. After these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem, and some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Nason of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. Let's pray together this morning. Father, we come to you today unashamed because of mercy. We know that in Christ, our sins have been forgiven, our sins have been washed away, and now we stand before you redeemed, declared, justified, not guilty by your grace. And we are grateful for that. And now we come into your presence to worship you, to ascribe to you the worth that is due your name. And Lord, we ask for your blessing in these moments. I pray that by your Spirit you would just draw near to us and take your word and apply it to our lives and help us to see, Lord, as we just heard in song, the beauty of our Lord Jesus Christ, that we might be moved to follow Jesus wherever he leads. And we'll thank you and praise you for that grace. Lord, it's in Jesus' name that we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. We are following Paul um, on his third missionary journey that we see in the book of Acts. And we see that at the end of this journey, he is headed back to Jerusalem. He wants to be there by Pentecost. He wants to meet with the uh, leaders of the church there in Jerusalem. We also know from reading some of the epistles that he had collected an offering for, uh, from churches in Macedonia to go and help the needy uh, Jewish believers there who were suffering in Jerusalem and uh, surrounding areas. And so he's getting back to that area. He wants to bring the offering. He wants to meet with the leaders. He wants to encourage the church. But God had revealed to him uh, by the Spirit uh, that when he got there, it would be difficult. He would be arrested. He would be bound. He would be imprisoned. He would be mistreated. And yet we see him continuing on toward Jerusalem. We saw last week how Paul stopped at a place called Miletus on his way back towards Jerusalem from uh, Greece. And he gathered some 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 elders from the church in Ephesus whom he loved so dearly and he gave them some last words as to how they were to lead and encourage the church there in Ephesus. But then he leaves Miletus and we saw there in the first part of chapter 21 he set a course for a place called Kos and then Rhodes and then Patera. That would have been about a three-day journey by sea. Uh, but this ship that he's on as you look at the geography, as you look at the map, it's stopping at every seaport, and Paul's in sort of a hurry. So in Patera, he finds a ship that is heading back directly across the Mediterranean without stopping at every port to Phoenicia. That would have been a voyage of about 400 miles. And so because Paul is in a hurry, he gets on the boat with his missionary team, and they head back 400 miles across the Mediterranean, passing Cyprus on the left, it said, headed back to Phoenicia, and they land in Tyre. And as they land at Tyre, they begin to encounter some believers there and in other towns, and we see the believers uh, grappling with the will of God for Paul's life. And we see Paul leading them to, sh- to show them Not only what seeking the Lord's will looks like, but what surrendering to the Lord's will looks like. And they come to the conclusion, let the will of the Lord be done. And so I want to just walk through this passage with you and show you from the text, there are three considerations as Paul sought to follow God's will. Three things are happening as he is seeking to surrender, to live surrendered to the will of God. First of all, we see that Paul was helped 
by hospitality. Paul was helped by hospitality. Look what it says there uh, in verse 4. Or verse 3 it says, When we had come inside of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre. For there the ship was to unload its cargo. And so while the ship is unloading its cargo, they have a few days there. So they choose to go find some Christians there in Tyre. Uh, the, the fact that there were Christians in Tyre is fascinating. Uh, probably the Christians there uh, were there as a result of Philip coming to share the gospel after he uh, shared the gospel with the Ethiopian eunuch in the desert in Gaza. Then he journeyed towards this area, the Bible tells us, and probably as a result of his witness, people were saved and churches were started. So they go to find this church in Tyre. It says, having sought out the disciples in verse 4. We stayed there for seven days. Days And they are there with those disciples, spending time with them. And then look what it says uh, down in verse 8. On the next day, we uh, departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. So they stayed with some Christians there in Tyre. Verse 7 says, they greeted some brothers in Ptolemy and stayed with them for one day. And then when they arrived in Caesarea... They stay with Philip the Evangelist, one of the first deacons, Acts chapter 6, and they spend some time with him. And then it says down in verse 16 that after they left Caesarea, uh, they went to the house of Nason of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. Now very practically, Paul's needs are being taken care of by hospitable Christians. When he arrives on the shoreline of Syria in Tyre, some Christians take care of him. As he journeys toward Jerusalem, step by step, there are Christians in every place that are ministering to him, taking him in their home, covering his expenses, uh, feeding him. There's great hospitality here in the church. And we see that as a major help to Paul as he fulfills God's will for his life. So thinking about hospitality, we see in this passage the unique bond of Christian fellowship. As a matter of fact, when he was in Tyre, notice the Bible says he was in Tyre for about seven days, just a week long. Look what it says there uh, in verse 5. When our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey, and they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. We went on board the ship, and they returned home. These Christians in Tyre came to love Paul in just a week's time. And they loved him so much, they get their, their wives, their children, they follow him out to the, to the beach where the ship was leaving. They kneel down, they pray, and you see this very close Christian bond between Paul and the church there in Tyre after only a week's time. And that's pretty significant. What do we learn from that? We learn that in this passage there's the unique bond of Christian fellowship. The unique bond of Christian fellowship. There's something special when Christians get together. Even Christians that have never met each other before. When they spend time together, the the Christ in each one of them begins to resonate. and, And they begin to grow in their love and fellowship and bond with each other. I've had this experience I've been privileged to travel all over the world and encounter churches all over the world. People 
uh, that spoke my language, some that did not speak my language. And there's a special thing that happens when you arrive and you are spending time with believers who have the same Spirit of God in them that you have, that believe in the same Jesus you believe in. They've embraced the same gospel that you've embraced. And as you meet them and you spend time with them, there's a bond, there's, a, there's this connection there that's hard to explain. You, you love them even though you just met them. And they love you even though you just met them. You feel like you've made friends for life and for eternity. Why? There's a unique bond of Christian fellowship. And Paul is experiencing that here. And that hospitality from the Christians who grew to love him is helping him along toward God's will. And that's one of the significant things about the body of Christ. The body of Christ consists of people from different places, backgrounds, and ethnicities that are united in Christ. It's an awesome thing to behold when God takes people who are very different and he brings them into one body, the church, and they grow to love one another because they are following the same Savior. F.F. Bruce says this, The disciples at Tyre were not old friends of Paul as the Ephesian elders were, but the love of Christ is the strongest of bonds. Let me say it again. The love of Christ is the strongest of bonds. That's why you may have experienced before that you have brothers and sisters in Christ that you're not biologically related to, and you may be closer to them than you are to biological family that does not follow Christ. There's this, there's this bond here that you don't even have with biological family members because of the Jesus you are following. So he says, the love of Christ is the strongest of bonds. And at the end of a week, he and they were as firm friends as if they had known each other all their lives. Isn't that awesome? You can meet a fellow believer in Christ anywhere in this world, spend a little bit of time with them, and you are friends for life and friends for eternity. Why? This unique Christian bond, this hospitality, this love for one another. David Peterson says, Even though there had been only such a short time to get to know one another, a close bond between the traveling believers and the Christians entire had been Formed the presence of whole families at this farewell, gathering to pray for Paul and his companions on the beach, highlights the seriousness of the occasion. Listen to this. Their support and admiration for Paul must have been particularly encouraging for him at this time. Their love, their hospitality is helping Paul to follow God's will for his life. And we need to learn that we are here to help each other, listen, pursue and surrender to God's individual will for our lives. Amen? The body of Christ is meant to be there to encourage you as you follow Jesus wherever he leads. That's our role. And one of the ways we can do that is by love, by hospitality, by fellowship, by koinonia, by community. We can encourage each other not only to seek God's will, but to surrender to God's will. That's what's happening here in this passage. Hospitality is of utmost importance. I read an anecdote about Francis and Edith Schaefer. Francis Schaefer and his wife were apologists for the Christian faith. They defended the faith in the 1900s, and they lived in Switzerland, and they opened up their home, a place they called Le Abri. And they would welcome anyone and everyone to come and just stay there at their house for as long as they wanted. And they would be there to answer questions about spirituality. And they would use the Bible to, to help people to come to a a Christian perspective on life, to come to a Christian worldview in their life and living. They were hospitable. Their home was open to help people journey towards the Savior. And Edith Schaefer wrote this about hospitality. She wrote, Every Christian home is meant to have a door that swings open. 
Isn't that good? Every Christian home is meant to have a door that swings open because by your hospitality, your care for another believer, your fellowship with another believer, you can help them to live surrendered to the will of life, to the will of God. You can encourage them to surrender to the will of God for their lives. Amen? And so Paul has helped along the journey all along the way by the hospitality of believers, some he had just met but they're welcoming him and encouraging him. There's a second thing here, a second consideration about Paul surrendering to the will of God. Paul was not only helped by hospitality, but Paul was deterred by heartfelt concern. And this is where the story takes an interesting twist. He's deterred from heartfelt concern. Look what it says there in verse 4. It says, "...having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days." And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. Now, earlier, Paul had said, I'm bound by the Spirit to go to Jerusalem. I know it's awaiting me there, but I'm bound, surrender to the Spirit to go and follow Jesus to that city. And now, these believers in Tyre are being, being addressed by the Spirit of God. They understand that Paul's going to be arrested. And their interpretation is this. Paul, if hardship is waiting you in Jerusalem, don't go. And he gets this later on in the passage as well. Look what it says there in verse 8. It says, when they came to Caesarea, they, they entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, one of the original deacons in Acts 6. And they stayed with him. He had four married daughters who prophesied. And while we were there for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, this is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. And this is the second time we see Agabus. Earlier in Acts, he is uh, prophesying, I think it's chapter 11, he's prophesying that a great famine was coming in the land. And he shows up again, and he has another prophecy that God revealed to him. He takes a, a belt to illustrate the prophecy, and he says, just the way my hands are tied up by this belt, Paul's hands will be tied up by this belt. Now look in verse 12. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. And so there are believers in Christ who love Paul. They're concerned for Paul. And based upon their knowledge of what's coming, they say, don't go to Jerusalem. That's their interpretation of what the Spirit of God was saying. Now, as we think about this, this this deterrence because of heartfelt concern, there are three thoughts about the will of God and the input of others. This is important, the will of God and the input of others. First of all, people can have, listen to this, the same information and come to different conclusions. Verse 4, verse 11, the Christians knew by the Spirit that hardship was coming for Paul when he arrived in Jerusalem. They knew he would be imprisoned. Paul knew it. The Spirit had revealed it to him. And yet they come to two very different conclusions, don't they? Paul says, I'm going, God wants me to go. The believers say, don't go, Paul. We don't want you to be arrested. We don't want you to be mistreated. They had the same information, but came to two very different conclusions. Which is why this next statement is so very important. Listen to me. You can't determine the will of God for someone else. You can't determine the will of God for someone else. Now, the Bible speaks of wise counsel. And we're to go to others and seek wise, godly counsel in the situation. We're to get, 
we're to walk with wise people so we'll take a wise path in our lives. I'm not saying that you don't go and seek wise counsel. I'm not saying that you don't give wise counsel as you help people to process what God may be doing in their lives. But when it comes down to it, the individual has to make the decision whether or not they're going to go a certain direction in life. And you can't make that decision for them. And if you try, you may be making the wrong decision because you're not in their shoes. You you don't know how they are interacting with God through this entire process. So listen to me. You can help, you can encourage, you can counsel, but you can't determine God's will for someone else's life. Just like you don't want someone determining God's will for your life. Which leads to the third thing about the will of God and others. People that love you, listen to this, may try to deter you from doing hard things. No ill intent. They love you. They care about you. And so because they see the same information you do and know that hardship may be down the road if you take this particular path, they, out of their concern and love, may try to stop you from doing what God wants you to do. That's what's happening here. They have the same information Paul has, but yet they say, don't go, Paul, even though Paul says the Spirit has clearly told me, I am to go. And these people, out of genuine love, concern, and affection, are trying to deter Paul from going to Jerusalem. The will of God and the input of others. I read an anecdote about a bishop over a century ago. And he made this pronouncement from the pulpit and in writing. He pronounced that things that are heavier than air will never be able to stay in the air. In other words, he said, heavier than air flight was both impossible and contrary to the will of God. So people that are trying to make things fly in the air, that's that's opposed to the will of God. You know who his sons were? Orville and Wilbur Wright. The pioneers of flight, right? And here's this father saying, I don't think men should try to fly anything. That sounds dangerous to me. You say, was this pronouncement made out of concern for his sons? It was because later on, this bishop made both of his sons promise, listen to this, they would never fly in the plane at the same time because he didn't want to lose both his sons in one fell swoop. And there's only one time that we know of that Orville and Wilbur Wright flew in the plane together as they were testing their invention. This father loved his kids. He didn't want to lose them. And he thought that air travel looked really, really dangerous, and it is, right? It was. It was a new, brand new thing. And because of his concern for his kids, he, de- he tried to deter them from inventing the plane, which was God's destiny for their lives. And so you and I need to be very careful, first of all, that out of love and concern, we try to prohibit our loved ones from following God to do hard things. Yes, we counsel. Yes, we ask good questions and get them to think through all the implications. But it is not our job to deter them if they feel like God is leading them. Right? It's quiet this morning, right? It's important stuff. These folks here trying to stop Paul from going to Jerusalem, which, by the way, would be the mechanism that God uses to get him in front of Nero, the emperor of Rome. Wow. And so, 
Paul was deterred along the way by heartfelt concern. Listen to me. If you are pursuing Jesus, and it is taking you down some difficult paths, and there's something hard coming in your future because of your following Jesus' will for your life, you need to embrace good counsel and, and good wisdom in your life. But understand that there are people that care about you and out of genuine concern for your welfare may try to stop you from doing what God wants you to do. And I'm glad Paul didn't let that stop him. He continued to march toward Jerusalem. Why? I mean, Paul knew danger was coming. He knew the will of the Lord clearly. He was deterred by heartfelt concern. Why did he still go to Jerusalem? Well, that's the third point. Paul was compelled by the glory of Christ. Paul was compelled by the glory of Christ. It says there in verse 12, when we heard this, when we heard the words of Agabus, that he would get to Jerusalem and be arrested, when we heard this, we, this is Luke, this is one of his missionary colleagues, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then look how Paul answers. What are you doing weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem. Why? For the name of the Lord Jesus. And since we, he would not be persuaded, we cease and said, let the will of the Lord be done. Paul was compelled by the glory of Christ. Now here's something interesting you need to understand about this text to give you kind of a broader perspective. Paul was not surprised by the prospect of suffering. He was not surprised by the prospect of suffering. Matter of fact, I want you to turn to chapter 9. And chapter 9 of Acts is when Paul's converted. I want you to see what, what the Lord says about Paul's future way back in Acts chapter 9. Turn there with me. Acts chapter 9, verse 16. This is the Lord telling Ananias to go to Paul, who was blinded by the vision on the road to Damascus, and to encourage him in the faith. Ananias was scared because he knew that Paul was a terrorist of the church. He didn't want to go. But listen to what the the Lord says back in verse 15. The Lord said to him, Ananias, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. The Lord made it clear on the front end. Hey, Paul, welcome to the family. You're a child of God now. Here's my plan for your life. You will be an instrument to make my glory known among kings and Jews and Gentiles, but it will be hard. You will suffer. So Paul knew on the front end that following Jesus would lead to some hard things. He was not surprised by the prospect of suffering. We saw a couple of weeks ago that as Paul journeys back towards Jerusalem, the Holy Spirit had made it clear when you arrive, you will be imprisoned. You will be arrested. So he's not surprised by the prospect of suffering. He knows exactly what's coming, and the Lord had prepared him for that. But secondly, Paul understood that his suffering would not be in vain because it was for the fame of Jesus. He says there back in Acts 21, Verse 13, I'm ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for, 
for the name of the Lord Jesus. I'm ready to suffer. I'm ready to be in prison. I'm ready to be beaten. I'm ready to be mocked and maligned and misunderstood. I'm ready even to die. Why? Because by my obedience to the will of Jesus for my life, Jesus Christ will get more glory, and that's what's most important. And listen to me, if you don't understand that the glory of Jesus Christ is what's most important, you'll never follow him into hard things. Paul understood that by his suffering, Jesus would be made much of, and his fame and renown would spread among Jews and Gentiles, even into the palaces of kings. And so, Paul is is convinced that his suffering would not be in vain. Which leads to this question. Why should we follow Jesus into hard things? Why should we spend time and effort and resources for kingdom expansion? I mean, why should we follow Jesus if it's going to make our lives uncomfortable? Why should we do that? Well, the answer is found in the example of Paul. Listen to what Paul said over in Romans chapter 1, verse 5, when he understood his call to be an apostle to the nations. He says, We have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name, the sake of the name of Jesus among all the nations. The reason we're going down some very difficult roads is so that Jesus will get more glory among the nations. God is not a tribal God. He's not a a God just for America or any particular nation. God is a God that desires that Jesus Christ be worshipped among all the peoples on the face of the planet. Amen? Paul got that. He said, I've been called to make much of his name among the nations. And listen to what Jesus says over in Matthew chapter 19. This is right after the encounter with the rich young ruler. And Jesus showed how how hard it is for a rich man to be saved. And, And Peter says in a reply, see, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? If you're calling for sacrifice in following you, hey, Jesus, we've sacrificed. I'm not fishing anymore. I left my nets by the seashore. So what are we going to get in result of, as a result of our sacrifice? And Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. He said, well, that's, why, that's just for the disciples, you know, the, the apostles. That was, that was for them. Well, listen to what he says next. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake, for my name's sake, will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. Jesus says, if you embrace hard things, if you embrace suffering for the sake of my name, There is eternal reward. Nothing we do for the glory of Christ goes unnoticed. Even if it's hard. So why do we follow Jesus into hard things? For the glory of the name of Jesus. Listen to what John Piper says. For Paul, the glory of the name of Jesus and his reputation in the world was more important than life. 
No one will be able to rise to the magnificence of the missionary cause who does not feel the magnificence of Christ. And so what about you? Are you willing to follow Jesus wherever he leads for the glory of his name? For the sake of his name? Is the glory of Jesus a more important consideration than your personal comfort and ease in this life? Those are tough questions, aren't they? And Paul exemplifies for us here what it means to follow Jesus into hard things for the sake of his name. Listen to me. Jesus is worthy of worship and praise. And our desire should be people from every tribe, every tongue, every language, every ethnicity, every background, every socioeconomic level, giving Jesus the praise he deserves as they embrace him as Lord and Savior. That is what it's all about. Listen, that's what life's all about. The glory of Christ. That should motivate us to follow Jesus wherever he leads. But know this. Paul had an example to follow in his suffering. Look what it says back in Acts 21, verse 13. It says, Then Paul answered, What are you doing weeping and breaking my heart? For I'm I'm ready not only to be in prison, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, Let the will of the Lord be done. Do you see in that exchange, there are some echoes of Gethsemane? Paul knew what was coming, just like Jesus knew what was coming. And Paul was not relishing the prospect of hardship. And yet, he knew it was God's will. And he surrendered. Just like Jesus surrendered in the Garden of Gethsemane. Paul surrenders and and the people see this. And and they surrender too. Just like Jesus said, let the will of the Lord be done. Jesus said, not my will, but yours be done. And the people say here in Acts, not our will, but yours be done. They're following the example of Jesus Christ who faced hard things so he could die on the cross for you and for me, providing the redemption that we so desperately need. Paul had an example to follow through suffering, and you and I have an example to follow through suffering. We just followed Jesus. He provided a perfect template of what it looks like to surrender to the will of the Lord for the glory of God. So you and I, need to be prepared to follow Jesus down difficult paths if it means that Jesus gets more glory. I read a quote from recent U.S. gold medalist in swimming, Maya Dorado. By the way, there were some really significant quotes coming out of Rio uh, from some Olympic athletes that were bearing witness to Christ. It was pretty significant this year. More than I remember in past Olympics, uh, some some different athletes really uh, glorifying Jesus uh, as they were interviewed. But this gold medalist, Maya Dorado, said this, I don't think God really cares about my winning very much. I think God cares about my soul and whether I'm bringing his love and mercy into the world. Wow. You know what she's saying here? God's not concerned so much about what I do. He's concerned about why I do it. He's not so concerned with me getting a gold medal as he is using his platform in my life to make much of Jesus. That's what she's saying. Remarkable statement that making much of Jesus is more important than a gold medal. Which leads to the point of this sermon. 
We should follow Jesus wherever he leads, listen, fueled by a desire for his glory. We should follow Jesus wherever he leads, fueled by a desire for his glory. Which leads me to this question. What is the hard thing that God may be calling you to do? What is the hard thing that God may be calling you to do? You know, it may be that God's calling you to to leave where you live and where you work and to plant your life somewhere else to make disciples for the glory of Jesus. A place in need of a new church or, or, or a missionary. Someone that will go and be a catalyst for, for disciple-making among unreached peoples that are desperate for the gospel. He may be calling you to do that. I, I, listen, I want to be unapologetic as a pastor. I, I'm going to say to you a lot, God may be calling you to leave and go somewhere else. I'm not apologizing for that because I know that God speaks to us as individuals. And he may be calling you to hard things for the glory of his name. He may be calling you to to be a missionary or he may be calling you to the ministry, the vocational ministry. He may be calling you to pastor. I was talking to someone recently and you know what the seminaries are saying right now? There are not enough young men coming to pastor. And our churches are going to have a hard time finding pastors in the coming days. Surely God is calling some young men to pastor his church. Maybe calling you into some other form of vocational ministry. But listen to me, it may not be a missionary, and it may not be ministry, but it may be something hard in your, in your life. Maybe something about your family or your workplace, wherever he's placed you. Listen to me, not everyone's a missionary, not everyone's in, in ministry, uh, uh, vocational ministry, but God has placed you where he's placed you so you can leverage your life for the gospel. So wh- where he's placed you, what maybe he be calling you to do that's hard, that's difficult? Is there something that the Lord is leading you to do that may be, may be very, very scary, but it's for his glory, so it's worth it. Where has God placed you? How can you leverage your life for the glory of the name of Jesus Christ, who is matchless and beyond compare? What may God be calling you to? And then, listen to me, once God shows you, after you've sought his will, are you ready to surrender? And follow God's will. I close with these words from an old hymn. Take up thy cross and follow me. I heard my master say. I gave my life to ransom thee. Surrender your all today. He drew me closer to his side. I sought his will to know. And in that will I now abide. Wherever he leads I'll go. Wherever he leads I'll go. Wherever he leads, I'll go. I'll follow my Christ who loves me so. Wherever he leads, I'll go. Can you take those words and make them your own? Wherever he leads, I'll go.